Welcome to Living by Faith, your bright spot to your morning. I'm your host, Trillia Newbell, and I am so glad to be here. The goal of Living by Faith is to help you do just that, live by faith. Each week, I am joined by a guest to help you think about what the Bible says about a topic and apply it to your life. We walk by faith and not by sight. Sometimes we need help thinking through topics to help us know the times and how to live and respond. Today's topic is one that has been a constant theme in the news and one that is often divisive. But I'd like for us to take a breath and think about the topic in terms of human dignity and the image of God. I'm going to say that again because I really think it's important. I would like for us to just take a breath. And we're going to think about the topic in terms of human dignity and the image of God. We are going to turn to the Word of God and get some help, not about policies, but on how we should view our neighbor. So what's the topic? Immigration. My mother-in-law immigrated to the United States from England 53 years ago. She shared that when she came, she came alone, pregnant, and dragging along two young boys. I can't imagine her flying on this plane. Eight, I think she was eight months pregnant and had her two little young um, eight-year-old eight and younger boys with her. Okay, so she's flying on her own. <clears throat> My father-in-law, he was in the military, and his plane was delayed. So they had to play, uh, fly in separate planes because of the military. He flew on a military plane, back then at least. So here is my mother-in-law in New York City, all by herself. She hadn't traveled anywhere before. So from this little town in a small town in England to New York City. Now, back then, she had no real way to reach my father-in-law. When she arrived, taxi drivers were on strike. First of all, I can't even imagine. Now, she had to rely on a private citizen to get her to her hotel. There was not Uber. There was no Lyft back then. You couldn't call an app or do any of that 53 years ago. So she had, to, I can't, I'm, every time she tells this story, I, I try to imagine it and with being pregnant with two young children, and I can't. I can't imagine it. And I just think it was would be so terrifying for a young mom. So she said that she sat in her hotel room, but she did make it there, with little more than a penny to her name and bawled her eyes out, waiting to see if my father-in-law would arrive. Terrifying. I often think of my mother-in-law and the terror she felt she left her homeland. She was all alone with two kids on and one on the way. And it just sounds miserable to me. Now, of course, my father-in-law did make it, but life was very different for her. When we think of what people are going through, I think it helps to soften our heart towards them. My guest, Bree Stinsrud, um, has done a lot of thinking about what others are going through. She has also studied the scriptures to consider how we should love and serve the sojourner. 
Bree, she is a human dignity advocate and the director of Women of Welcome. Her passion is to equip the church to engage more consistently in human dignity issues and develop a heart for the sojourner. She holds a master's of biblical and theological studies from Dallas Theological Seminary and lives in Colorado Springs with her husband and two kids. She is also the author of Start With Welcome, The Journey Toward a Confident and Compassionate Immigration Conversation. Bree, it is so good to have you, friend. I'm so glad to be here with you this morning, friend. Yeah, so I have watched you and I remember, gosh, how long ago? I think I met you maybe eight years ago. It's been a long... I mean, it's been almost a decade that we've been friends. Yes, yes, that's so cool. Anyways, but I remember sitting across for, from you and your compassion and love for others and desire to learn <laughs> poured out from you and it has never stopped. You just, just have such a humble heart and desire to hear and desire to learn and desire to love and see people and love them well. It's it's just not a surprise to me that you have now given your life and ministry to that. And at the time you were working, you were still, you were giving your life and ministry to that, but it's just continued. So for people who maybe don't know you and just pretend like you are sitting across from them, like you sit across from me, I think we were in like a cafeteria. I don't know where we were. And <laughs> you, I think we were, um, Sit across from them and tell them about you and and your heart and where this started. I mean, I think those of us who grow up in the church are always wondering what is our calling, where do I fit in this in this big C church environment? And I grew up as an evangelical free church pastor's kid in the Midwest, and so my life was the church was my life, and we were always there. If we weren't at our house, we were in church. If we weren't. In church, we were off serving in the community or inviting people into our home or going on missions trips. I mean, this is just how I grew up. I mean, my dad went to seminary, my brother went to seminary, then I went to seminary. So we all just have this hunger and desire to serve people, but also Mm. know God's word really well. So this, you know, orthodoxy and orthopraxy just go, you know, hand in hand for us, at least in my family. And you and I, Trillia, met when I was working at Focus on the Family. Yes. And I was the director of Sanctity of Human Life at Focus on the Family. So a lot of my uh, work in really the human dignity space started out in the pro-life movement. I was going to the marches with our staff and our constituents in Washington, D.C. We were supplying pregnancy resource centers at medical clinics around the country with content and resources and supplies and all of the things that the pro-life movement really needed to be medically accurate and sustain themselves and be present uh, publicly, politically, and even just in everyday communities. So that was really kind of where I got started in the human dignity space was really in the pre-born pro-life space. And that, you know, of course, expands you into other avenues all along the human dignity spectrum because we're going from womb to tomb in that space. And so that's where you and I met. And that's really kind of where this journey started was really getting involved in the pro-life movement. Yes, that's right. I remember um, sitting across from you and a friend and talking. I think it was at Focus on. That's exactly right. I think I was visiting the staff and giving a talk. Yes, and, you were. Yes. <laughs> here we go. Was like, yeah, here we go. It's all coming back. I was about <laughs> to sing that song. It's all coming back to me now. Anyways, mm-hmm. and so here we. Yes, and and I um, 
and I, I, I love that you mentioned the womb to tomb because I think sometimes we just think about the preborn. But I volunteered at a pregnancy crisis center, and caring for the mothers was one of the highlights of mm-hmm. just um, my early ministry time and and serving in the local church and beyond. But but yeah, so so. Where did it go from there? Because you've written a book on immigration, and and I would love to just talk through your journey and and what, what captured your heart so that you you're keep you're continuing to do that human dignity work, and it just has expanded. Yeah, you know when you start to work in these pro life spaces, you get connected in closer proximity to people. And when you do that, you get in closer proximity to their pain and you start to understand what the pain points are of people and why they have ended up in the situations that they're in. And so it's a really humbling thing to get in closer proximity to people because otherwise people are just numbers and sometimes they're scary headlines, especially in immigration. There's so much fear around immigrants coming to our country and changing our culture and safety and the border. And it just gets really noodly really fast and you get really afraid very quickly, right? But the closer you are in proximity to individual image bearers, you really start to understand the nuance and also just the unique nature of everybody's story. So when I was working in the pro-life space, much like you, you know, you get close to women who are coming from Um, a lot of times just broken families and places where there is not a strong faith or there's not a strong system of support relationally or financially. And then you start getting involved in, okay, well, what, what are the options in my community, you know, as far as affordable housing or affordable childcare, or what does it look like to expand programs for vulnerable moms, like, you know, TANF and WIC and SNAP and some of these other programs that, you know, many of us, don't have to necessarily negotiate through like these vulnerable women who are now facing unplanned pregnancy. So of course, you know, you get into this uh, preborn space and then that takes you really kind of into the adoption and foster care space because adoption is not the solution to abortion, but it, it is an option. And so you kind of get into that space. And then once you get into the adoption and foster care space, you start getting into all of these other areas because you realize you know, if you get into the foster care space, if kids aren't, you know, adopted and find forever families, there's a pipeline for those kids. And those kids either end up in prison or they end up homeless or they end up um, very vulnerable to human trafficking. They navigate a mental health care system and world that's so broken by themselves and they face higher rates of unemployment. And so you're like, wow, now I have to start caring about prison ministry and I have to start caring about human trafficking efforts. And oh my goodness, what is going on with the homeless population in my city? And you find out that those without a family and without a structure, you know, are maybe the same ones that we saved from abortion, but now that they're, they've come into this pipeline because we haven't necessarily continued our, our pro-life ethic all the way through someone's life stage. Right. And so then you just start, when you touch all of those areas, you start realizing how interconnected some of these other issues are of, of race and homelessness and displacement and in malnutrition and food starvation and all. And then that kind of expands, not just from America, but just from a global perspective. Why are things happening? Why are people on the move? And what happened was, is I actually took some time away from focus on the family to 
make some space and some margin to adopt our second child. And when I did that during that time, I was invited by World Relief, which is the national, um, which is the official humanitarian arm of the National Association of Evangelicals. They were doing trips down to the border and across the border to help evangelical leaders and women think about this issue with better proximity and from a biblical perspective instead of a political perspective. So I was invited to go on one of those trips and we went down to Oaxaca, Mexico for four or five days. And that was a trip that really changed the trajectory of what I started uh, becoming a real strong voice for in this entire global dynamic that is migration. Well, let me tell you, you shared a lot there. And I imagine that people are like, well, wait, where do I where do I begin? And so <laughs> that's <laughs> that, that was a lot. And, and it's good. And it's true. So when we return, let's figure out where to begin more when we are back. Welcome back to Living by Faith with Trillia Newbell. I'm your host, Trillia Newbell, and I am so excited to talk about this topic, and I think we can have a better conversation about it. We have been, we have been talking with Bree about immigration, and I wanted to ask her, I mean, at the break, she talks about a list of all of the various challenges and really hard things that people are going through. And with all of them, all I kept thinking is, oh, we probably need to help there. Oh, what about that? Oh, what, what about this? Oh, no. Okay. So what do we, how do we choose what to get involved in as the church? That's one question. And two, how do we help someone who's overwhelmed? So Brie, when, when you were listing that list, I could, I was imagining the person listening, thinking, oh, Oh, there's so much going on. Yes. There's so much to care for. Where do we mm-hmm. even begin? And and I I do think we should begin with the Bible. Um, that's where I'd like to, us to begin, especially when we're talking about human dignity. And then we can talk about that practice. You you were talking about orthodoxy, sure. orthopraxy. So we'll talk about the practice. But let's start with human dignity. Where do we see sure. it in the scriptures? Oh my goodness. I mean, this is probably something you talk about on your show a lot, but I mean, we start right at the very beginning in Genesis with one Genesis 1, 26 and 27 about how God made people uniquely in his image and in his likeness. And when we think about life from womb to tomb and how each and every person has something that they are reflecting, uniquely reflecting about God himself in this world, you think about If we are made in God's image and likeness, that means we have immeasurable value, worth, potential, creativity. And I'm not just talking about people out there. I'm talking about us ourselves. So when we get overwhelmed, when we think about all of the needs in the world, the beautiful thing about the big C churches is that the Bible tells us that we are a body. And so that not everybody is supposed to be a hand. Not everybody is supposed to be an eye. Not everyone's supposed to be a foot. And so that frees us up to actually engage in, in, in areas that God has equipped us with our experiences, with our passions, with our privilege that we have in certain communities and areas and regions of the world. And so really coming to the Lord and saying, all right, I don't have to swallow this whole thing. I need to know that it's connected because as a body, 
We need to be in communication with each other about all of these pain points in the body. But I have my own role to play, and that's going to contribute to the functioning of the body and the glory of God, which is the beautiful thing is we don't have to stress about doing all of it. We just have to ask the Lord about where, what part we are in the body at this season in your life and at this moment in time. That is a really helpful reminder because I do think that, of course, right now we are thinking about human dignity and immigration specifically, but Mm -hmm. in there's so many painful things in society and in our local churches. And I think it could become paralyzing for some who think, oh, I can't, if I can't do the big thing, whatever that big thing is, then I can't Mm do anything. But Mm -hmm. what a good reminder that we are made to reflect the Lord and that we all have been given various gifts and we can exercise those gifts. <laughs> we can think and ask the Lord, what is it that I actually can do and do that thing? And and so with that in mind, what other parts of the scriptures help us to think about the sojourner? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, again, if we start with this kind of like foundational uh, scripture of that each and every person is made in the image and of likeness of God. And we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I mean, really in the Old Testament, there the, the word, the Hebrew word for stranger, foreigner, alien, uh, that word is the word ger. And it's used over 90 times in the Old Testament where God is instructing his people about the ways in which they should see, care, and legislate for the safety and protection of this uniquely vulnerable population. And you might not understand necessarily like, well, what's so vulnerable about a sojourner? Well, a sojourner is somebody who is leaving their home. They're likely leaving their family. That means they're leaving their culture, their language, all of their all of their strength and connectivity. And they're leaving that to go into a place where they likely have little connection little language to rely on and that they are searching out, carving out something new for them or their family. And so there's no provision for them because back in the Old Testament, really, you had to have land or you had to have tribe in order to have provision and safety, right? And then, so if you didn't have those things and you were sojourning to a new place, you were uniquely vulnerable and the Lord knew that. And so he made so many commands throughout the Old Testament for people to be on the lookout to provide safety and and uh, welcome and hospitality and even economic support for the sojourner in our land. And the sojourner is actually coupled with, you know, Tim Keller talked about this in one of his many amazing books about this quartet of the vulnerable, which he grabbed from this really great theologian, Nicholas Wolterstorff. And really the quartet of the vulnerable in the Old Testament is this grouping that we constantly see in the Old Testament of the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, and the poor. And if God wants his people to care about really anybody in the Old Testament, he wants them them to have a particular focus on caring about these vulnerable populations of people, these four, the orphan, widow, sojourner, and the poor. And so over 90 times, the Lord is calling attention to the plight of the sojourner. He's saying, Treat the sojourner as if they were native born. Don't reap over your fields more than once because I want sojourners who are coming through to have the edges of the field. They have, you know, there are provisions for kinsmen redeemers and that's in the Ruth the Naomi story. I mean, almost every major ba- biblical character in the, you know, in the scriptures was a migrant at some point or was yeah. an immigrant to somewhere else. And so this is something that the Old Testament reminds us. 
But then if we skip over to the New Testament, you know, Jesus really does just kind of like level the playing fields. In the Old Testament, you've got kind of this elevation of these four unique vulnerable populations, orphan, widow, sojourner, and the poor. And then you get to the New Testament and then Jesus is asked, well, who is my neighbor? As if there was someone who wasn't considered a neighbor, right? And Jesus says, well, what is the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength and to love your neighbor and yourself? And he says, well, who's my neighbor? And he tells the story of the good Samaritan. And he said, who do you think was you know, the neighbor there in that story. And then he also just goes on to speak in parables and stories. And in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about when the kingdom of earth is, or the kingdom of heaven is here, he talks about separating the sheep from the goats. And I will know my people by how they fed the hungry and how they clothed the naked and how they housed the homeless and how they took care of the sick. And he said, and everyone's like, well, when did we see you homeless, sick, naked, tired, afraid? And he's like, Whatever you did to the least of these who are experiencing these things, you did unto me. And whatever you did not do for those, you didn't do unto me. And I think that that kind of gets um, tension filled when we think about trying to hold what keeps us comfortable and safe and what fits in kind of the margin of our lives with what the scripture actually demands that we do in meeting the needs of others. It's a very radical way to show authentic Christ-like welcome and hospitality. And frankly, sometimes the church is pretty rusty at this kind of radical hospitality that he is calling us to. And yet he disciples his own 12 in this way in Matthew 14 and 15, where he's, he's meeting thousands of people, a crowd that will not leave him alone and will not stop coming. And I don't know if that sounds familiar to anybody else, but we have crowds and thousands of people that keep coming to America's front door and it's intimidating to us and we're worried about it. And when Jesus has a similar situation in the fact that there are crowds of people that keep coming to him and seeking what he has, he's the disciples say, you know what, you've been out here all day. And everybody's tired. Everybody's hungry. They're asking for food. We should just send people away into the nearby villages to fend for themselves. And Jesus says to them, you feed them. No, don't send them away. You feed them. And so the disciples are very distraught by this command. Like, what do you mean us feed them? We don't have anything. And Jesus is like, go gather what you have and bring it to me and put it in my hands. And then we all know the story of what happens as he multiplies it so much so that there's so much left over. And every time he sees these crowds that keep coming to him and he's exhausted and he's tired from, from doing miracles and speaking with the Pharisees, he, the first thing that comes to his mind in scripture is, and Jesus had compassion on them. And so it's a challenge to see some of the very big challenges that we have at our Southern border and around the world globally. And our first instinct to be compassion because that's what Jesus, that was his response. And so it's like, yeah, but it's a little bit more complicated today. It is. And we can talk about that if we want to, about how complicated it is. Even from a biblical perspective, we can talk about how complicated it is, but also hold that tension that Jesus held. Yeah. Well, I would love to think of it also because I could see someone listening and thinking, well, wait a minute. Yeah. They, they were coming to Jesus. They yes. weren't coming to a land, like a random land. They wanted 
to see the savior. So, mm-hmm. so wrestling, would you just say that you're, what you're trying to say is that they should be like, that we as Christians should emulate Jesus in our love for neighbor, because it is different if, because they're, or, or would you say that these, it's equivalent, like what you see in the scripture? No, I think, I mean, okay. we definitely, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about U.S. immigration policy. Right. But it has okay. so much to say about how Christians are to treat immigrants and refugees. And right. so sometimes okay. we get this, um, I guess the best way to describe it is we kind of get this empire mindset that sometimes trumps our kingdom mindset. So as a country, um, you know, if putting on this empire mindset, right, as a country, America and its government has the right to and also the responsibility to provide for, above any other citizens, the health, safety, and well-being of its citizens. That's the role of government. Okay, so put that off to the side. That is true and well and good. The other part is, as Christians living within a country with a lot of privilege, it doesn't mean we don't have problems. It just means we have a lot of privilege. We have a lot of things we could put in Jesus's hands, is what I'm saying. And so if we put on that kingdom mindset and we say, all right, we are Christians living in this country, what does looking like Christ, what does responding like Christ mean? And in Romans 15, 7, when he says, welcome others as I have welcomed you for the glory of God, it's not about anything else other than the glory of God. Our whole lives should only be concerned about the elevation of Christ in our lives. So evidently so that everybody can see and wonder, what is this peace you have? What is this welcome you have? What is this love you have? Tell me more about that. Okay, well, we I, this is just such a good conversation that we need to have. When we return, I want to talk about why we don't want to have this conversation. All right, more when we return. Welcome back to Living by Faith with Trillia Newbell. I am your host, Trillia Newbell, and we are talking about immigration, human dignity, the compassion of Jesus, how in the world we can or cannot get involved. Like, what do we do? What do we do? Or how should we think? And these are really important conversations. We must have these conversations. We need to have these conversations in our home. We need to teach our children. We need to be having these conversations in the church. What do we think about this? And how in the world should we act? as Christians. And so before the break, um, Bree, my guest, was talking about um, Jesus and the people who came and how Jesus instructed the disciples to uh, feed. And so I asked her, okay, wait a minute. Is, is that, can that really be applied to the U.S.? (laughs) Is that really something that we can, can do here? And she explained, oh, no, we're talking about reflecting Jesus and loving our neighbor well. So my big question is, can we disagree? Not, I don't think we can disagree on the fact that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is a command. (laughs) We can't disagree on Genesis 1, that we should view people, all people, whether they love Jesus or not, 
as image bearers. They are made in the image of God. Therefore, they have dignity. We must view them as God does. And we can't. And so we need, we, we must view people rightly as God does. We must love people well. But when it comes to the the, all, of, all of the policies, and we're not going to go into specific policies. But I think one of the reasons why this conversation is so hard for people is that we've lost the ability to disagree. And I think we can, though. I think we can live together and disagree. Bree, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think this issue is really difficult to talk about for so many people because of a couple reasons. One, it is completely entangled in partisan politics, which is not anything that I like to delve into at all, honestly. It's not that there aren't public policy solutions that Christians should get involved in and consider, but I'm not interested in discipling people into a particular political way of thinking about this. What I want to do is I want to disciple the church into loving people well. And what we know is that immigrants and refugees are made in the image and likeness of God. So what does that mean for us when we think about immigrants and refugees? What does that mean about how we talk about them? What does that mean about how we engage and step in to serve where there is a need? So there's a lot of, you know, entanglement with these parts in politics, which just is so, so intimidating because a lot of the conversation and the narrative around immigrants and refugees in this country is so divisive and so right. fiery and dehumanizing, honestly. And so yeah. how do you find language to get into the mess of all that. Like nobody wants to get into the mess of all that. I guarantee we're having these conversations in our home, but are we having them well, I guess. And I think the second reason why we don't have these conversations is because there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear about what's going on with immigration. And what I always tell people in our Women of Welcome community and what I tell people and pastors around the country is Christians were made to hold tension well. I mean, the New Testament Christians were living in Roman society and they were holding their faith well. And Paul was talking about how do we live in these societies and hold our faith well and shine the light of Christ and what his, what his salvation and his redemption did for us in the light of all of the other icky stuff that was out there, right? So I'm always just saying you can have your faith and, and have compassion and have involvement in this space and everybody's going to have varying viewpoints on that. But I think what we can all agree is immigrants and refugees are made in the image of likeness of God. And I also think that people are relieved when I say we should and we can have safe and secure borders and also humane treatment of people showing up at those borders. Right. So of course, um, safe and secure borders is, I mean, there's just no way to live and provide safety, not only for Americans, but for, for people on the other side of the borders who are being exploited by lax policies and lawlessness on the other side of the border. Safe and secure borders actually provide safety for people on both sides of the border. And I right. also think that we we have to love and consider what's going on in the lives of Border Patrol agents who are working really hard to serve our nation and serve vulnerable people at the border, right? So I think people are surprised when I say, as Christians and as Americans, we can hold this tension of supporting the efforts that provide safety and security, but also holding intention that all of those efforts need to keep in mind the humanity and the dignity of people, individual image bearers who are bringing something unique into the world and showcasing something unique in the world about their creator. And so 
holding these things of safe and secure borders and humane treatment of people sometimes is a big relief to hear because yeah. it's not a political statement. It's it's a simple um, re realistic statement of what really needs to take place and what we can really hold in tension together. Okay, we can so love our country and we can love immigrants and refugees at the same time. Yes, we can. And and one of the questions that, you, okay, one you clumped two different groups together, so I want to separate them um, yeah. so that you can talk about that. So I'll say ask that in a minute. But also, I just, just a reminder, you might be listening to this in the U.S., but this uh, show goes beyond the U.S. So, yeah. it, so you said immigrants and refugees. Talk about the difference between those two. Sure. And yeah, because I think that's important for us to know. And yeah. then um, and then I want to talk about opportunities to actually serve the communities. Sure. So immigrants and refugees are a part of uh, a vulnerable community of what is happening globally throughout the world. Migration is happening in every region of the world. Right now, the UN estimates that over 100 million people have been forcibly displaced from their homes, meaning they did not want to leave. And 35 million of that 100 million, I mean, we see this, right, all the time. The world is on the move. There are civil wars. There are invasions. There right. are natural disasters. There are governments that are collapsing and assassinations that are happening in regions around the world. So there's a lot of instability. So people are on the move. And because we are created with this desire to flourish and to create and to survive, we will migrate as, as we have since the beginning of time to find flourishing, right? So of those 100 million people who are just migrating around the world to find safety and flourishing, we have 35 million who are what are determined to be refugees. And refugees are people who are around the globe who are fleeing persecution based off of a well-founded fear. It's a very specific definition that's given by the UN that says that you are fleeing on account of your religion, your social class, your, um, there's, there's a five subset situation. It's a very specific dynamic, but you, um, your race, religion, your social group, um, it, you could be fleeing all of these things and it would be coined as persecution when determined by you, the UN through an interview. And so immigrants are people who are just migrating from right. one country to another refugees are determined to be forcibly displaced people because of persecution. And so that's the difference. You could be an immigrant who is also a refugee. You could be a refugee that's not yet an immigrant because you don't have the ability to migrate somewhere else to another country and permanently stay there. An immigrant is someone who is wanting to go to another country and likely permanently stay there, where a refugee really most people don't know this, but refugees who are who are waiting for welcome into another country and to be resettled somewhere don't actually get to dictate where they go. Um, mm. It's really about what country will take them, depending right. on where they're from and what they're fleeing. So that's the difference between those two groups. And that's good to remember. And and I think it's also good to remember that they they don't necessarily they don't want to leave often right. and mm -hmm. they're forced. Yeah. And so that is, it's a good reminder, I think, as we're thinking about the plight of people and trying mm -hmm. to love people well, is that we just don't, we don't know what they're going through. And so we want to extend grace as we're, we're thinking about this. Now, 
We only have a minute left in this segment, but when we return, I want to talk to you, Bree, about how to actually put feet to this because we've been talking about, and I think it's necessary, we've needed to talk about the why. Now let's talk about the how. How do we help? All right, more when we return. Trillia Newbell, and we're speaking with Breeze Stendrud, and we are talking about immigration and how to view our neighbor. She also talks on refugee and refugees and the difference, because I think that's really important. But now I want to talk about the opportunities. Okay, so we've we've kind of got a foundation of why. Why should we care? Um, I, I, Bree, you know, it's interesting. At one point you said that people are having conversations about this. I don't know if that's <laughs> I don't know how much that's actually happening. And I would love to talk to you about that for a sec before we talk about the opportunities, because I don't think people are actually having deep conversations. I think maybe people are thinking, oh, OK, so this is what has been told to me. So I should be against that or or this is what has been told to me. So I should be for that. But I am very much a proponent and a a cheerleader for educating so that we can make right decisions and have right convictions or conviction in general. So so do you really think people are having that this many conversations about it? Well, I know our nation is having a conversation about this. I mean, you cannot pick up a newspaper, you cannot scroll through your newsfeed and not see an immigration headline. So I know the country is having these conversations. I think what is more difficult is Christians being able to have a good, like you said, deep conversation about these because the issue has been so entangled in politics. And yet as Christians, we've just talked about how this is also a biblical issue and how our response and how our thoughts and attitudes and feelings towards this specific specific vulnerable population matters to God because these are all people are made in the image and likeness of God. And so what does that actually mean for us when we think and talk about those who we feel like maybe are very different than us and that we're not exactly sure why they're here and all of that. I mean, Lifeway Research did this study in 2022 and they were asking self-identified evangelicals about um, what was their thinking on immigration. And only 21% of them said that they were most influenced by their Bible about Mm. this topic. And that actually trails behind media influences. So I think there's probably a lot of consumption of narratives and probably a lot of consumption of um, headlines. And then maybe just a paralysis of how to actually talk about this. And if we, like I said, if we pull it out of the political realm and we talk about it as a biblical issue, man, we have a rich heritage and we have plenty of scriptures that inform our way of talking about it. Um, You know, in that same study from Lifeway, it was only 30% of evangelicals that said that they were encouraged by their church to reach out to immigrants in their community. And less than 50% said that the number of recent immigrants to the U.S. provides an opportunity to show love and introduce people to Christ. And yet, this is the interesting, hopeful factor in all of this. The study said that 76% of evangelicals said that they would value hearing a sermon 
that taught how to apply biblical principles to everyday current issues of immigration. Hmm. So I think people are hungry to have a better conversation, one that holds that tension we were talking about, but also leads with compassion. Because honestly, Trillia, our compassion isn't meant to be political. It's meant to be prophetic. And so we don't have to limit our compassion to vulnerable populations, no matter where they are in the world, whether they're at our front doorstep or whether they're around the world or whether they're in our neighborhood. We don't have to have a limited level of compassion because our compassion comes from the Father and it is supposed to be prophetic. So if someone were to say to you, I can't believe that you are developing a heart for this you know, vulnerable population of image bearers, I can't believe that... that should be believable because each and every person is made in the image of likeness of God. And our compassion is from the father. Every good thing is from the father that we get in. And because we're made in his likeness, of course we have compassion for hurting people. And therefore it's not, it's not political. It's meant to be prophetic in our own communities and our churches. You know, it's interesting. Lifeway also did a study about Bible reading in general, and I don't remember the statistics, but it was something like 75% of evangelicals have a Bible or two in their home, but don't read them. And I, my, my ministry is to encourage people to get into the word. Right. And this just continues to affirm that just great need for us to know God and love God and to know what the Bible says. And so <clears throat> I just, I, I think it's important. It's important for us to, to dive into the word, to be informed so that we might know God rightly. And so we can love our neighbor. Well, I do believe mm-hmm. that as we're reading the scriptures, we will learn what it means to love our neighbor. So it doesn't surprise me that those are the connections. But what does surprise me was that statistic that 70 something, 78% you said, I think. 76%. Yeah. Yeah. 76% of church going people want to hear sermons on it. So I guess my encouragement, if there is a pastor listening, is that this would be a great sermon (laughs) to go and just dig into the word and teach your people what they should know and believe. Now, with that said, I do believe people, we, we are called to test, test what we hear, read the scriptures, um, and, and, and make sure that it aligns with what the word of God says. We can only do that if we're reading his Bible, reading the Bible. So I, and if you are a pastor, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, just if you are a pastor, like Trillia was saying, there's a, and you're feeling like, I have no idea where I would even start about this. There is an evangelical immigration table and that that's a website. You, you can Google evangelical immigration table. And it's a bunch of evangelical pastors who are diving into the space and have resources and sermon outlines and videos for you. So that's just a resource I think would be helpful, Trillia, as people dive into their Bibles, like you're asking. Okay. And if, if, if you have, I, I know that that um, there's there's different views on different organizations and all of that. Mm-hmm. So you can also pick up a commentary. You can also, yeah. I mean, the scriptures teach about the scriptures. So if yes. if there if you need to dive into the word, dive into <laughs> the word. Um, and so I I just want to encourage you that that the Bible and there are other scholars. I know pastors use 
that, and you were talking about Tim Keller, who got an idea from another pastor. So you can use the resources around you and also the Bible itself and commentaries to help you engage in the word well and teach people. Because I know every, you know, yes. Okay. So here's another question for you. We don't have a lot of time left. So give people a first one or first one or two steps that they can do in their own communities their their computer they're walking out their front door what can they do yes i think a lot of people think that they don't have immigrants or refugees in their communities and so they're like this issue really isn't something on my front doorstep but it actually is i mean every community in america has immigrants and and so many communities have resettled refugees in the area so my challenge is to get proximate. There is power in proximity because that's when we get into people's lives and we enter into their stories and we hear their pain points. And then we can actually just start ministering with the love of Christ when we actually get close to people. So what I would say, the biggest thing besides just reading your Bible is doing a quick Google search, immigrant ministry or services in my city or immigrant congregations in my city and attending immigrant congregation like services. I've done this a couple of times in my city and it's just been beautiful. I went to a Korean church. I went to a, uh, a Slavic ev- evangelical church. I've been to, uh, you know, so I've just been to multiple congregations and then you realize, wow, my city is pretty diverse and there are people here that I could befriend and love and know. And so just even poking around in your own city to understand where maybe some of these hidden and vulnerable people are And then just asking how you can befriend and asking what are the needs of that particular vulnerable population in your city or in your region, I think is a really great great place to start. I love that. One of the things that my local church does is we have a farm and we, um, yeah, we, we give food to the vulnerable population, uh, kind of that, um, the food desert in our community. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, because where we live you don't think, but right, right in our community, mm-hmm. there is a great opportunity to serve the vulnerable and those who need help and prayer and love and service. And, and so I am so grateful for that opportunity. And I also want to just say you can pray. I know mm. that we don't use prayer as an action, but prayer is an action. So I want to encourage you guys to pray for your neighbors, to love your neighbors well. I'd like to thank my guest, Bree Stensrud, uh, for joining me today. Thank you, Bree. Also, thanks to the behind the scenes team at Moody Radio, my engineer, Bob Moreau, my producer, Karen Hendren, and Lara on the phones. To hear today's program again, you'll find it at livingbyfaithradio.org or on the Moody Radio app. You may also connect with us through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find it all at Trillian Newbell. Living by Faith is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. <laughs>